And a very good evening to you and welcome to People of Note on Classic 1027. I'm Richard Cock, and every Sunday at this time we talk to someone who is a person of note and listen to music of their choice. And my guest in tonight's program is Canute Paris, who is a Jamaican visitor to South Africa, who's just written a book on the African Renaissance. He was also an academic at the State University of New York at Stony Brook and at Hofstra University on Long Island. Welcome, sir. Thank you very much. That's very kind of you. I appreciate it's it. very good to have you as a guest on my program. And uh, first of all, I think I'd like to know why you're in South Africa, because obviously your, your home is in Jamaica and the United States. Correct. Uh, actually, it's not only South Africa. It's, uh, this is my 16th African country over a period of about uh, 24, 25 years, doing as much research as possible on the book, as well as meeting some extraordinary people. So, in moving around, um, one of the things I've learned, as a matter of fact, one of the things that has been reinforced is the fact that people are people, no matter where you go. Uh, they may have different languages, uh, different forms of religious uh, worship, different forms of lifestyle. In the final analysis, they're just ordinary people. So, reinforcing that for me was extremely gratifying, and I enjoyed it tremendously. And when you say this is your 16th African country, is this over a period of years? Yes, over a period of 24 years. And why your interest in Africa? My interest in Africa started in a most extraordinary fashion, I must say. Um, it started when I was approximately six years old. And it was not only interest in Africa, but interest in the range of humanity and the range of human experiences. And the way that happened was that my mother was a member of the People's National Party, Moline's Road Branch. This, <coughs> which is, was this is now in Jamaica. In Jamaica, that's yes. correct. And she took me along with her to various political meetings. I was, in effect, her bodyguard <laughs> at six years at six. old. <laughs> six years old. Um, those meetings were extraordinary in the sense that they exposed her, not so much me, because I had very little idea what was going on. They exposed her to the world at large. Um, my exposure to her world was as a consequence of her weekly repetition, or daily repetition, rather, what transpired the previous week. Consequently, even if you had concrete in your head instead of brains, you would have to remember, because that became her mantra. Um, we learned about such things as colonialism, obviously, um, the nationalist movement, the, uh, the budding federation of the West Indies. Um, we learned about every aspect possibly of British life and how the British political and social system affected us. So. Uh, I grew up actually learning an awful lot about Africa as well, particularly such people as Jomo Kenyatta and Seretse Kama, uh, later on Kwame Nkrumah and so on and so forth. So you saw the continent as really homeland, where I belong, where my ancestors came from. As a result of which, you develop this affinity for the continent and wanting to go there, yearning, so to speak. That was reinforced by uh, the Rastafarian mantra, which we will discuss a little later, hopefully. 
And that mantra was, um, come on now, everybody, listen to what I have to say. Listen and I will tell you the talk of the town today. In every corner that you can walk, you'll see a group of people parked, meaning standing around. They're not joking. They're talking about Ethiopia. So with that as a background, I develop a very strong interest in the African continent. Well, your first choice of music is by Eduardo Di Capua, and this is O Sole Mio. That was the group Il Volo performing O Sole Mio with the uh, Orchestra of Detroit Opera under Stephen Mercurio. The choice of Canute Paris, who's my guest in People of Note. Now, I have to ask you quite early on, it's quite an unusual name, I have to say. Yes. Uh, and you say your, your mother was a great influence. She was, it sounds as though she was an, an activist of some sort. She was an activist in a very controlled fashion. She was an activist in the sense that uh, she wanted desperately to contribute as much as she possibly could to a better society and by extension a better world. She often told us, for instance, you know, you must try to be like Moses. Moses made a significant contribution to humanity by making a significant contribution to his people. Now, I mean, that is, to say the least, that was flattering Moses of all people. Um, we ended up in a situation where she would ask us, what did you learn in school today that relates to what it is that you want to do? You know, that became very heavy, a very difficult question for a boy of 8, 10, 12, 14. Today, why specifically today? Our answer was, well, you should learn something every day that has something to do with your life subsequently. Uh, I, was, I, was, I was in a tizzy to explain to her precisely how, for instance, Coleridge's Rhyme of the Ancient Manor related to you know, future undertaking. But you came up with something. As long as she was satisfied, that was important. The other thing was that we were one of the few people in the neighborhood who got the Daily Gleaner, daily. This is a local newspaper. And she was assigned me things to read. And I would read them, I would come back, and I would say, so-and-so said so-and-so and so-and-so, whatever. She said, no, 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 that doesn't make any sense. What word did he use to help you to come to that conclusion? I can't pronounce the word, you know, I'm 10, 11 years old. He said, no, get a pencil, write that word on a piece of paper, take it to the library on Saturday morning and come back with the answer. Then you can explain it to me because what you're saying doesn't make any sense. So from that, you develop a sense that this dialectic called the human experience is not only ongoing, but it made demands on you, and you ought to try to fulfill those demands. And your name, Canute? Okay, that was my father's responsibility. His best friend was a man named Canute Burke. So they made this pact between them. My first son will be named after you, and your first son will be named after me. So that's how I got the name. Subsequently, I learned that there were Danish kings by the name of Canute. So I'd go around masquerading as a king, <laughs> <laughs> which, of course, didn't work out very well. But that was how it came But out. obviously, you had a happy childhood in Jamaica. Very, very. Now, it's one of the important aspects of life that you learn lessons that live with you throughout. And one of the lessons I learned was that uh, class behavior 
was sometimes infinitely more important than any other kind of behavior you can think of. And the way I learned that lesson was this. My father wanted to get a ticket to go to the United States to work on farms. And um, he had to get it from someone who was well-established in the community. So he went to the principal of the school, the private school we were attending, Merle Grove High School, and asked the principal, Miriam Speed, to write him a letter, which he did, except that in the letter she, re she referred to my father as a fourth-class citizen. Now, why was he a fourth-class citizen? I didn't understand that myself. I didn't, the whole concept of class, I didn't understand. It turned out that in her, from her perspective, if you were not a college-educated person, which was rather rare in that, at that time, or you weren't a member of the Church of the Aristocracy, which was the Anglican Church in Halfway Tree, or you weren't a high-ranking civil servant, you were a fourth-class citizen. Now, I saw my father sit and cry like a baby when he was referred to as a fourth-class citizen, which by implication meant that my mother was a, a fourth-class mother, she was a fourth-class wife, and we were fourth-class children. Um, that had to be avenged. And eventually it was avenged, but the idea of class stuck with me and has, st has stuck with me ever since because it's a fundamental aspect of human behavior. I yeah. also All right, we'll talk about that after your next piece of music. And you, you were talking about the fact that you were a son and here's the William Tell Overture. This was about a father and son relationship. The final section of the William Tell Overture, played by the London Philharmonic Orchestra, the choice of my guest in People of Note, Canute Paris, who's visiting South Africa from the United States and obviously originally from Jamaica. And uh, you were just telling us about the fact that your father was trying to get to the United States. Did you eventually go with him? Or? No. no. Uh, we went many, many years later. The point of it all is that he did go, and he did work on the farms on three occasions. He saved whatever money he could to build us a house. Um, he was a very hardworking man, a very decent man. Uh, he was the kind of person who the only thing he lived for were uh, his religion, his wife, his children. That's it. Now, here was a strange thing that taught me another lesson that has lived with me over the years, namely that evil has nothing to do with color whatsoever. I'll tell you why I say that. When the house was half finished, I went to the backyard one day to pick some fruits for our breakfast. And the lady next door came to me and she said, please tell your mother not to send you to pick any more fruits here because the place has been sold. It turned out that the property was held in common law title, which meant that it was subject to being sold by just about anybody who was a direct descendant of the original owners. My granduncle sold the property to a man or through a man named Alan Blissett. Alan Blissett was blacker than blacker than black, so to speak. He did his evil deeds through the assistance of an attorney named William Pixley, who in South African parlance would be referred to as colored. Uh, the, the individual, one of the other individuals who benefited directly or indirectly, I'm not sure, was a fellow by the name of uh, William Branstorff, who at that time was a city engineer.
So there we were homeless. Homeless. Literally with, homeless. With a half-built home. With a half-built home. Which had taken all your father's money. Precisely. What they had not figured on was the fact that they had taken on a buzzsaw called Gladys Paris. My mother fought tooth and nail. Tooth and nail. Now, we ultimately salvaged a quarter of it, but two significant developments accompanied that, uh, that salvaging. One was that uh, Father Eberly, a Roman Catholic priest uh, attached to halfway tree Roman Catholic Church, would come and pray for my father every single day. I'm looking at him now in my mind's eye. Uh, he would come, lean his bicycle up against a half-finished house, and with a little mischievous wink in his eye, he would just go into the room and start praying, you know. And in effect, the wink was saying, don't worry, everything will be okay. Well, you know, children don't understand that. But we do understand the religious significance of what he was doing. The other thing that I believe saved my father was the fact that my mother used to put his head in her lap as you would a little baby. Then she would uh, uh, squeeze his nostrils together. He would open his mouth to breathe. She would put in a, 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 a tablespoon of soup, and he would swallow in order to breathe. And tearfully, she would be telling him, Ivan, listen, you just cannot die and leave me with all these children. We will get over this. Because he had a nervous breakdown. The idea of losing everything that he fought for and for which he worked so long really got to him. So um, you learn that when things go bad, there is no sense internalizing it. Because you internalize it, you just make a bad situation worse. Um, and ultimately, many years later, he told me the very same story. Things go bad. Listen, try to work them out, but don't do what I did because I almost killed myself. The third lesson you learned from that experience uh, was that life is cyclical. Things change. Uh, what is good today may be bad tomorrow. What is uh, uh, bad today may be good tomorrow. So let it take its course and do the best you can and see what happens. That was Danny Boy, sung by Jackie Wilson, the choice of Canute Paris, my guest in People of Note. Canute, you've spoken about... Uh, the stratification in Jamaican society and obviously with its colonial background it was probably similar to South Africa in days gone by with the this very strict stratification of society here. I'm assuming there was a similar thing in Jamaica. Yes, there was a stratification and the stratification interestingly enough um, had in my humble view two different strands to it. One was a stratification based on color, um, where there's a significant part positive correlation between your color and your status in the society. Then there was another stratification based on residence. If you lived in certain parts of Kingston at that time, and even St. Andrew, you were ordinarily regarded as undesirable. If you lived in the hills of St. Andrew, or in Moline's Gardens, or in uh, uh, what ultimately was known as the Cambria Heights area. You were uh, of middle class, upper middle class, that kind of thing. No matter your color? No. No. No, absolutely not. Now, one of the interesting things about that stratification is that it had 
a manifestation of the sociology of geography in this sense, that the Rastafarians lived larger in Kingston, Western Kingston. Uh, they were regarded as ragamuffins. They were iconoclastic, to say the least. Now, there are people who really didn't take much pride in their appearance at that time anyway. Rather, they took an awful lot of interest in Ethiopia as a country and what Ethiopia represented. Thirdly, one of their foremost uh, advocates was an extraordinary uh, young man by the name of Mortimer Plano. Now, here's the interesting thing about Mr. Plano. My mother used to tell me, I want you to go to the Coronation Market to get fish from a specific fishmonger. I am not sending you to listen to those Rastafarian people. Okay, Mama, fine. You know what children are. The very thing you tell them not to do is what they're going to do. So the fishmonger wasn't there. I would listen to Mr. Planner, hear what he had to say. And he was extraordinary. For instance, here is this uh, Rastafarian fellow, then a young man, making some, what I thought at the time, were absolutely outrageous statements. For instance, he said, you know, the Ethiopian civilization is older than the Bible. Huh? Heresy at best. Older than the Bible. Then he said, oh, eight, ten thousand years ago, whatever, whatever. And I'm saying, no, this man must be insane. I've never heard of this before. Then he would say things such as, you know, there was a woman named Anna Nzinga in Angola who fought the Portuguese in the anti-slavery movement for 40 years. And I'm thinking now, no, 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 no. Why am I not hearing this in school? Why am I not hearing this in church? Why am, not, why am I hearing this from an outcast, an iconoclastic outcast at that, Mortimer Plano, as I later discovered his name was. So I lived with that for a very long time. We're going to hear some more music, and then I want to hear more about the Rastafarian movement and its place in Jamaican society, but also in the world. And let's hear now, Send in the Clowns. Michael Barrett with the Jacaranda Children's Choir performing that wonderful song, Send in the Clowns, by Stephen Sondheim, the choice of Canute Paris, my guest in People of Note. Canute is a visitor to South Africa from Jamaica and the United States, and he's just released a book on the African Renaissance, which we'll get to later in the program. But we're just hearing about your own roots, Canute. And just for our listeners' sake, just give us a bit of an insight into Rastafarianism, its history and origins, and, and how it manifests in life today in the world, because it's spread all over the world now. It certainly has. Did it start in Jamaica? Yes, it did. Um, it started actually in the late 1920s with a prediction by Marcus Garvey that Africans, irrespective of where they were located, should look to Ethiopia for the crowning of a king. That king was crowned in 1930 in the personage of Hale Selassie, who became emperor. He took the title the conquering lion of Judah, the king of kings. Now, once he took that title, 
Marcus Garvey's prediction was picked up by a fellow named Howell. Howell then began to argue that irrespective of where we are as a people, including those of us in the diaspora, we were originally Africans. We, we were a great people, in effect, picking up on the line of argument that was to be advanced later on by Mortimer Plano. Now, they quoted several passages in the Bible indicating that they should grow their hair long, they should not uh, 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 engage in eating anything that is unclean, which became the basis for what they call ital. Ital is food that is cooked without salt and without meat. Uh, some Rastafarians, for instance, would eat a little fish, but mostly vegetables and ground provisions. Their Afrocentric views of the world upset a great many people, including in Jamaica. So in the 1950s, for instance, and even into the 1960s, they were brutally persecuted by the authorities, particularly when they argued, which was absolutely preposterous, of course, that Hale Selassie was God, or God's representative on earth. Now, it's interesting that this put my mother in something of a dilemma, because on the one hand, she also had an Afrocentric view, but she drew the line at the idea of Hale Selassie being God. The second major tenet of Rastafarianism was the idea that we ought to be repatriated to Africa. So they had this romantic view of Africa, namely a place that they refer to as Zion. Um, in so doing, they equated themselves with the Jewish people who were actually driven out of uh, Israel and into what is now Iraq, uh, sitting by the waters of the Tigris-Euphrates and expecting to sing a song in praise of the new God. The thinking was, how can we sing King Alpha's song in a strange land? The Rastafarians felt pretty much the same way. So their cosmology consisted, consisted rather, of Hale Selassie being the head of their movement, Africa being heaven, and thirdly, the idea that we should all want to go back to heaven. So um, with that thought in mind, they created quite a bit of confrontational behavioral patterns with the authorities that be, not only in Jamaica, but elsewhere. Now, Marcus Garvey took this ideology one step farther and established an organization called the Universal Negro Improvement Association and African Communities League. The headquarters for that organization in the Western world was uh, in New York City, but he had plans to extend it into Liberia and established contacts with a number of individuals in Liberia who were strongly supportive of his idea. Thought it was a wonderful idea and it should be done. However, that was not to be because the very track of land uh, that he had in mind on which the foundation of the Rastafarian movement should be established in Liberia was ultimately to become the property of Firestone Tire and Rubber Company. So that brought a screeching halt to the idea. It's a very interesting story. And uh, I mean, obviously, the, the Rastafarians are very widespread today. Perhaps their, their beliefs have changed a bit or not? Well, I wouldn't say their, their beliefs have changed. What I would say 
is that it has been repackaged. Um, when I say repackaged, I, may, I mean that there were people who came along who indicated that Rastafarianism really ought to be expressed in broader humanitarian terms. Uh, I'll give you a, one of the con a few examples of the consequences of that. At the time of the Tiananmen Square occupation in 1989, the Chinese students, or young people there, were singing Three Little Birds by My Window, um, um, as well as Get Up, Stand Up, Stand Up for Your Rights. This is a song that Bob Marley made popular. Uh, in the case of the in the case of the Berlin Wall, when it was being destroyed, you had these German youth singing the same songs. Um, it's you had for me because it was it's like an, an early black nationalist movement. It is indeed. Yes, it is indeed. Um, that's one of the characteristics of it, which became international. Uh, you had a very interesting case where Bob Marley gave a concert in Japan. And while he was playing his music, the Japanese people were singing <laughs> with a heavy Japanese accent, whatever you were singing. So the whole issue of humanity coming together as one was expressed in song. From a philosophical point of view, it was expressed in the idea of I and I. Now, the I and I notion was, I believe, taken from... Uh, well, not taken from, but was an expression of Martin Buber's very famous book, I and It and I and Thou. Uh, I will be willing to ex I will be willing to explain that a little later. Well, perhaps appropriately now, here's the Lord's Prayer. A beautiful version of the Lord's Prayer by Albert Malot. That was sung by Audrey Mboyazi with Diane Coots at the piano. And this is the choice of Canute Paris, my guest in People of Note. So all of this background of yours with um, your mother being an, an activist, uh, your father being dispossessed of his house, having a nervous breakdown, the Rastafarians, made you aware yourself of your own heritage from Africa? Yes, it did. But it also raised another point, which is related somewhat, um, in the sense that I learned to be tolerant of people because my mother was an outcast because of the fact that she was sending us to a private secondary school. Johnny Lyons, who at that time was Jamaica's leading Mr. Soprano, was an outcast uh, because of sexual identity problems. Yet they were extremely good friends. Whenever they met, they were they just gallivanted and laughed and talked and hugged and kissed and carried on like two little children. Because my mother turned out to be the only, only friend that Johnny had. And Johnny turned out to be the only friend my mother had in that little community. Now, I say tolerance because the tendency of much, as, of, much of humanity, it seems to me, is to try to make other people the way you are. And to the extent that people attempt to do that, they create monumental problems. Now, with respect to the shaping of my thinking, I have to admit that 
uh, my parents and the political activities in which particularly my mother was involved was not the only source of that shaping. It was also shaped, interestingly enough, by some extraordinary teachers I had in high school, one of whom, interestingly enough, was an English woman by the name of Miss Helwig. Miss Helwig uh, was extraordinary for the simple reason that one could raise any issue with her, and she would just smilingly give you an answer without being judgmental. One day I asked her, uh, Miss Helwig, I don't understand this. How is it possible for me to learn X, Y, and Z from a set of outcasts called the Rastafarians, and I can't hear this in school? She smiled and she said, well, let me think about it. Think about it. A day or two went by. I went back to see her again. So because what they're saying is true. It is true. Now, I'm totally confused. I'm just absolutely confused. The Ra I'm learning from Rastafarians what I'm not learning in school. The Rastafarians are supposed to be nobodies, but they're teaching me. Then I asked her another question. I said, you know, Arnold Toynbee said, she said, Arnold Toynbee, please, please. Arnold Toynbee is an intellectual liar. I'm wondering now, how can an intellectual be a liar? It sounds, you know, it's contradictory. Um, so anyway, our conversations went on and on and on and on over the time being. And uh, she indicated to me that Arnold Toynbee came from a school of thought that did not pay much uh, uh, attention to the history of anybody else but Anglo-Saxons. So then I raised a question with her. I said, you know, that's kind of interesting because the behavior of the British in Khartoum was Anglo-Saxon history. You said, yeah, but Arnold Toynbee doesn't pay much attention to that. She was the one who enlightened me as to Lord Kitchener's behavior towards the Afrikaners in South Africa. And I'm saying now, in other words, what this lady is saying is that brutalization of humanity by other elements of humanity is a universal characteristic. And I went back to her with that very question. And she said, oh, yes, that is the case. It absolutely is the case. So now my eyes are opened up, and I began to understand things a little better. Well, here's something to take you right back home to Jamaica. It's the famous song by Harry Belafonte, the Banana Boat Song. That beautiful song about Jamaica, I guess, by Indeed. Harry Belafonte. Indeed. And I suppose that reminds one of of the roots that you come from, this amazing country. Have you been back to Jamaica recently? Oh, several times. Yeah. I go back as often as I possibly can. Um, you know, I like to tell people Jamaica is my cultural mother. Uh, I must go recharge the batteries ever so often, and I do. <laughs> and this is, uh, I mean, you're not a young man anymore. Well, it doesn't seem that way, does no, it? No, it doesn't. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I'm, and you were growing up, uh, what, some 80 years ago? Precisely. Yeah. Precisely. In, in uh, Jamaica. So society has changed dramatically in those 80 years. It certainly years. has. It has indeed. And it manifests itself in Jamaica's source of income. There are three major sources of income in Jamaica. One is tourism.
And and uh, I must go back to the Rastafarians in this point because the Rastafarian influence and their musical impact on Jamaican society has been so significant that both have succeeded in drawing tremendous numbers of people to the island, approximately 2 million visitors each year. That's a large number of people. That's a lot of people. Um, the income has increased as a consequence of the Rastafarian influence. The very people, interestingly enough, who are regarded as, and I say are because some of it still exists, outcasts. Those people, third person plural, right? Those people. Um, the second significant source of income is repatriation of funds. Uh, you're, there are about a million and a half Jamaicans living largely in three countries, the United States, Canada, and England. And they, they send back large amounts of money to the island. And the third source of income, of course, are exports of bauxite and yams and so on and so forth. All of this bringing amazing grace to Jamaica. And welcome back to the second hour of People of Note. My guest tonight is Canute Paris, who's a visitor to South Africa from Jamaica and from the United States. Uh, he's just written a book on the African Renaissance, which we're going to talk about in a moment. But he was also for many years an academic at the State University of New York at Stony Brook and at Hofstra University in Long Island. Now, what got you into your academic life? Once you'd finished school, uh, presumably you went to university somewhere? Well, indeed I did. <laughs> Some say for too long. Um, <laughs> I did. But what really got me on the academic, got me started on the academic track was, again, my mother. Because we would, you know, we walked around an awful lot to the markets, to church, to wherever, wherever. And on occasion, uh, we would see people dressed in black gowns coming out of the Anglican church, the church of the aristocracy, so-called. My mother would say, you see those people? She said, see, those people are very bright. Those people are very bright. They're very well educated. You must be like those people. Um, you see those people with the colors around their necks and so on? They are the professors. You must be a professor. You must. What did I say? I must be a professor, Mama. Say it again. I said it again. Let me remind you, just in case you forgot, you must be a professor. So that was what got me started. Now, I began to think that the people I read about in the Daily Glena, Sir Arthur Lewis, for instance, uh, from St. Lucia, uh, Eric Williams from Trinidad, Grantley Adams from Barbados, they were all very outstanding people, very well-educated people. Or if you we went to political meetings, she would say, she would point to Norman Manley and she would say, you see that man? Be like that man. Be educated. Or in the case of Edith Dalton James, be like that woman. Be educated. Did you hear me? What am I going to say? Of course I heard. Well, I wouldn't dare say I heard the first time. Anyway, that was, got, that was what got me started. So when I left school... Uh, periodically she would say to me, now where are you going to college? I had no idea, none whatsoever. Finally, my girlfriend at the time had a contact in, um, in um, South Dakota, and she introduced me to this pen pal of hers, those days we used to write letters by hand, of course, not typewriter, please, by hand, mail them, wait for a response, that kind of thing. 
So I, con- I communicated with this young lady, and she put me in touch with South Dakota State College, where I got admitted in 1957. I showed my mother the admission letter. She said, oh, good, good. Where is this place again? South Dakota State. Where is South Dakota? I had to go to the library, get a map, come back. Here is South Dakota, Mama. Here is, uh, oh, yes, fine, fine, wonderful. She did not tell me, although Miss Oldfield, the geography teacher, told me. It's very cold in South Dakota, extremely cold. All she knew is that I was going to college. Wonderful, wonderful. You will be a professor. Yes, Mama. That's what got me started. So I ended up in South Dakota State College. But I must tell you this. The night I landed, which was the 7th of December, 1957, I alighted from the Chicago Northwestern, the railroad. While we were driving, uh, uh, traveling on the train from Chicago to, um, uh, to Brookings, South Dakota, I noticed that there were no people on the road, hardly uh, any cars. But there was smoke coming from the chimney of the farmhouses, and the place was blanketed with snow. So I'm thinking now, wow, this is what Miss Oldfield was talking about in her geography classes. You know, I mean, when she taught geography, you just lived the, the location. Anyway, little did I realize that I was going into a blizzard. When I got off that train in an overcoat that was too short and too small, with a grip and a bag and the wind blowing from every direction, snow blinding me, I had no idea if I was going up, down, north, south, east or west. I'm saying, boy, if I survive this, I promise the good Lord I will sin no more. Well, things haven't quite worked out that way. But what I will say is that I'm standing here wondering, what am I going to do? What am I, where am I going? What place is this? Suddenly, the good Lord sent an angel in the form of a gentleman who simply said to me, where are you going? So I said to him, I am going to the college. We said, oh, not this late at night. The college is closed. Let me take you to the hotel, which was about two blocks away or so. And tomorrow morning, you go to the college and get registered. He did. He paid for the hotel. And I settled in. I said, oh, my goodness. I never experienced anything like this in my life. So that was how I got started. Well, it's very interesting. And obviously, your mother has played a big part in this. So this song is for your mother my mother's eyes my mother's eyes that was that song the choice of canute paris my guest in people of note and obviously black issues have interested you your whole life yes they have certainly yeah. most certainly now because <clears throat> in 1957 race was a big issue in america it was and to some extent it still is but at that time um there were no more than about uh, the, the largest number of black students in South Dakota State University at that time was 11 out of a student population of maybe, uh, I would say, one and a half thousand, two thousand students. Um, I was very fortunate, extremely fortunate, that when I got to the college, uh, I registered in the sociology department as a student. They immediately employed me as a clerk typist and a researcher because I could type. The Underwood typewriter, I'm sure you remember, or should. Smith Corona, my my best friend. Um, also, I had to go to the library to do research for 
some of the professors. Now, I mention this because uh, I got very, very, very interested in doing something about the Rastafarians. They're always on my mind. And by 1960, early 1960, late 1959, early 1960, there was an undergraduate research contest. I had a teacher by the name of Shusky, uh, Arnold Shusky, uh, another one by the name of Cy Massman. And I started talking with them about uh, doing writing a paper for the undergraduate research contest. Right? So the, what do you have in mind? I explained to them. Professor Shusky introduced me to a remarkable essay um, by an anthropologist named Ralph Linton, the title of which was Nativistic Movements. And I said, wow, this is fabulous. This is going to be the foundation of my paper. Now, I got into the habit of pestering teachers very early in my academic career. And I must say, I have never met a teacher in any of the universities that I've attended who has refused to offer assistance if your interest is genuine. You're not just doing it to butter up the teacher or whatever. So I pestered, oh my goodness, Massman, and I pestered Shusky so much. They had to help. They helped. I helped. They helped. I formulated this argument that the Rastafarian movement was a nativistic movement and that one of its major functions was to preserve certain aspects of the African culture. Oh my goodness. I was on that Smith Corona forever, it seemed. Rewriting and rewriting papers on my bed, papers on the floor, papers all over. Because in those days, you know, the carriage is going back and forth. You made a mistake, you had to start over. Just about. Okay. Presented this paper. Uh, the board found it interesting, but they decided that it wasn't worth more than a third prize. And I was very annoyed. I was very, very annoyed. Third prize, after all that work. I said, no, man, I have to win the first prize. No, 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 this third prize business isn't going to work. So um, the next year, which was 1961, th that summer, uh, no, the summer of 1960, I um, came to New York because my parents had uh, migrated. My mother asked me, she said, what are your plans for the summer? I said, ah, Mama, you know, I, I really don't have any plans, but I'll, I'll, I'll see what happens. She said, no, 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 you won't see. I am going to tell you what you will do. And my mother said, I am going to tell you, you listen. So somehow she found uh, an employment agency that was looking for some young people to work in a camp called Camp Calumet in Wingdale, New York. So I ended up in Wingdale, New York at Camp Calumet. Um, <laughs> that was some experience. I had never experienced anything like that in my entire life. What happened was that there was these young people, 14, 15, 16, and as I'm moving around, I'm listening to their level of conversation. And they were sometimes, you know, the groups are rather amorphous. Two people here, five there, three there, 15 over there. Sometimes they would come together. Sometimes they would disperse. But they started their conversations by saying things such as, you know, studies show that, whatever. I'm saying, what is this? These are children. Or they would say, 
you know, the psychology of this is whatever, or the sociological impact is whatever. I, I'm scratching my head. Who are these children? It turned out that they were the children of Jewish parents who had gone to Israel to work on the kibbutz, or one kibbutz or another. And they sent their children to Camp Calumet uh, for the summer to interact primarily intellectually and socially with other Jewish children. So I am hearing from them what I was studying in school. And I'm saying, goodness gracious, this is extraordinary. So I got into a conversation with Bob Steck, who was running the camp. I said, you know, Mr. Steck, I I've never seen anything like this. He just smiled and he said, well, you know, these children are exposed to this kind of thing from they were very young. Consequently, their level of conversation. We're going to hear a Barker roll now. This is by Shavenka, and it's played by Seta Taniel. Seta Taniel playing the Barker roll in E minor by Xaver Shavenka. Can you, your travels in Africa have taken you to, as you said, 25 different countries. Just bring us up to date with what you've seen about the African Renaissance. I mean, you've been part of the, the African Renaissance yourself as uh, a black person from Jamaica. Yes. You've been involved in Rastafarianism, a sort of uh, early form of black nationalism. What do you see now with the African Renaissance in Africa? Uh, I see tremendous prospects for the African Renaissance. I think that unquestionably, the African continent has greater prospects for development than any other continent on the planet. It has the natural resources with which to do so. It has elements of a very creative leadership cadre to do so. Um, it has established some international contacts that I believe can help it to do so because the African continent cannot develop on its own. It simply cannot. Neither can it develop on the basis of phenotypical characteristics where people will say, well, this one is not African and the other one is not African and I am African and you are not African. No, because the idea of African, uh, an African outlook on life has to be one that is fundamentally holistic one that accommodates people irrespective of their physical appearance as long as they have something substantive to contribute to the continent's development. I think that is what is referred to as psychic identity. Now, I say that because <clears throat> the requirements for uh, uh, development must transcend those basic characteristics that, if they are not kept under control, will tear the continent apart. Whether they are differences in religion, differences in color, uh, differences in ethnicity, differences in geographical location, or whatever differences they may be. Now, it's interesting to note, and I must go back to Camp Calumet, if you don't mind, just to make a point, namely that 
1960, I worked there two years, 1960 and 1961. In 1961, when I was there, I met two extraordinary teachers. One was Marvin Liner, and the other one was Herb Robb. I told them what I wanted to do for the third entrance into the undergraduate research contest. They introduced me to a man by the name of Ernest Renault and a brilliant essay called What is a Nation? That essay opened my eyes, both literally and intellectually, to how it is diverse groups of people can get along and work towards a common objective. And that was significant, very significant. Well, your next choice is appropriate for that. It's none shall sleep. And certainly we need to be wide awake in this life. This is the Afro tenors. A version of Nessun Dorma by the Afro tenors, the original music by Puccini, and the choice of Canute Paris, my guest in People of Note. Your current period in South Africa, you, you're, you say you're looking for a publisher. Have you finished the text of the yes, book Yes, the text now? is finished at this point. Um, as a matter of fact, if I may add a point here, the core of the text has to do with the restructuring of the use of natural resources. How can, it be re how can they be restructured in such a fashion that everybody benefits? Uh, the capitalists, whether they be domestic or foreign, must benefit. That's just the nature of capitalism, period. Uh, the communities in which the minerals are located must benefit. The labor unions must play something beyond the usual adversarial role of advocating for wages, whatever, whatever, benefits, and so on. Government must be an enabler which facilitates the development of the resources and the benefits that accrue from that development that will help communities in turn to develop. I make the argument that it seems to be counterproductive for a government, any government, uh, to allow a small group of people to enrich themselves at the expense of the vast majority of the population. For instance, if there is a 26% set aside for BEE purposes, um, why not have that 26% accrue to communities, which can then use them in undertakings which generate a positive multiplier effect, such as road construction, sewage disposal, educational systems, schools, uh, textbooks, libraries, uh, uh, health clinics, and the rest, as opposed to those benefits accruing to an individual who becomes super rich and who has as much interest in a community development as I have in green cheese on the moon. Now, it seems to me that undertaking also leads to the enhancing of what are called centripetal forces, that is to say, forces that pull people towards the central government by virtue of seeing the benefits that they get from public policy, as opposed to pulling them away from government in such a fashion as to balkanize the society. That is the essence of the entire work. And in the process, I add, um, 
the ultimate result has to be the improvement of the lot of the ordinary African. If you cannot do that, you don't have an African Renaissance. You have something else. What it's called, I don't know. Finally, I look back historically and on an undertaking, for instance, such as NAPAD. And from my perspective, it was a wonderful idea. Uh, what has happened to it, I don't know. It was a wonderful idea because it had the earmarks of doing precisely this kind of thing. Uh, the third major argument that I make is that the structure that need the structures rather that need to be established for this kind of undertaking to be effective must be complementary and must be inclusive. Old Man River, as sung by Frank Sinatra, amazing song that. Did music play any part in your life? Oh my goodness! Yes, indeed, <laughs> it did. <laughs> You know, my father uh, was a very mischievous fellow. Matter of fact, as young people, we never really regarded him as our father as such. We regarded him as a mischievous older brother because whatever mischief we were in, he was in the middle of it. Um, and, <laughs> excuse me, laughing. Um, I'll tell you what happened. The Anglican church was nearby to where we were living on Malines Road. And depending on the strength of the wind and whether or not the doors were open. You could actually hear the singing, the choir singing. And my dear mother would sing along with the choir. Mm -hmm. uh, just humming. And, and at, my, at home, you mean? Yes, at yes, home. Yes, yes, yes. Um, and my father would say, ah, be quiet. Listen to the parish church choir. <laughs> in reference to my mother, you know. Uh, she, in turn, would say to him, you know, you ought to be ashamed of yourself doing whatever, whatever. Uh, then she would say to us children, don't listen to that father of yours. He's nothing more than an overgrown child. Right? Now, I must finish the story because I grew up thinking that my mother was speaking on my father. Right? So when I was in high school, uh, it's not directly answering your question, but I'll get to it in a second. When I was in high school, I decided I'm going to take up for my father because my mother is harassing him. So one day they had a little fuss about whatever, so I said, uh, Mama, Papa, so she said, excuse me. She said it a second time. Excuse me. And the third time, slower than the second time. Excuse me. Am I married to you? No, Mama. Are you the father of these children? No, Mama. Well, why are you getting in my husband's and my business? I made another mistake. I said, um... But, Mama, don't you butt me, boy. <laughs> so I learned my lesson from that, to stay out of... You know what my father was doing when all of this was happening? My father never laughed out loudly like other people. Ha, ha, ha. No, no. He had long ears on the back of his hand. So you rub them across his lips, and he would say... <coughs> For him, that was uproarious laughter. He's laughing at me. Then he saw me, I don't know, maybe the next day or whatever. And he says, let, let that be a lesson to you. Stay out of married people's business. So whenever I heard her singing, accompanying the choir at the parish church, and he would say anything to me, I just said, oh, really? <laughs> I knew to stay out of it. Yes, music was very important to my mother because she had certain songs that she would sing, even uh, during the course of the week, as opposed to only on Sundays. 
Uh, one of them was, Oh, Give Me Samuel's Ears. I don't remember the exact title of it, but that was one of the songs. Or she would, she would hum, There is a green hill far away without a city wall where Jesus Christ was crucified or whatever, whatever. And she would just sing along, not nobody in particular, uh, uh, to nobody, just to herself. And my father was always teasing her if he was around. And of course, she would retaliate. Um, the long and short of the story is yes. Now, there's another side to that story. Let's listen to your next choice, and then we'll hear the other side to the story. The great Mario Lanza singing I'll Walk With God from the Student Prince, the choice of Canute Paris, my guest in People of Note. The other side of the story. Well, the other side of the story was that, um, in all honesty, my dear father was no match for my mother. Here you had this little lady. She was more than maybe about five foot two inches tall. And this tall man, six foot three, six foot four, towering over her. After whom you've taken, obviously, because <laughs> you, you must be about six foot four, too. In that vicinity. Um, now, I mentioned that for this reason. We were uh, uh, Catholic church members. And um, my mother was sort of a reluctant Catholic. My father was even more reluctant. I think he just went out of habit. Be that as it may, at that time, the Catholic Church had an edict. You weren't supposed to eat meat on Fridays. The, that particular day, I happened to be home, and the fisherman came. The fish didn't look fresh. My mother didn't cook. She, she made roast beef. We went to the dining table with the knives and forks and spoons and whatnot, whatnot, whatnot. Said the grace and everything. Sometimes she would even sing a little song, a little hymn before we ate. So we're there. She opened the dish. My father saw the roast beef. He said to her, um, Gladys, you know, I'm not supposed to eat meat on a Friday. She said to him, Ivan, don't you start with me. Don't you start with me. Because when I was an Anglican, you wanted me to be a Catholic. You took me to the priest and the priest said, Hail Mary, Holy Mary, etc., etc., and sprinkled me with holy water, and said, Gladys Veronica, you are now a Catholic. So you know what you do, Mr. Paris? You just bless the roast beef and call it fish. That was my mother at her best. He never said another word. Now, I mention that because their gentle banter always just about ended up in her singing, one hymn or another. Um, sometimes she would even send me to get the hymn book and say, Turn to page so-and-so. Let me see if I know this hymn. And sure enough, she would know a verse or two when she would, she would hum or she would sing. That's the way she, she, uh, she brought us up. Well, here comes a wonderful song sung by Louis Armstrong, Nobody Knows the Trouble I've Seen. Obviously, a very old recording of Louis Armstrong singing Nobody Knows the Trouble, trouble I've Seen, one of those wonderful uh, African-American spirituals. And and the equivalent, I guess, of I mean, you in Jamaica, you had the the Rastafarians and Bob Marley and and um, reggae music and so on. Well, the Americans had their African American yes, spirituals, very much so. All of which helps to create uh, a sort of feeling within people that they have an identity, which seems to be in what a lot of your academic life has been about the the identity of black people. Yes, it's, uh, it's uh, a, f a matter of identity, but it's, 
that identity manifested manifested itself in whatever I could write to uh, help to put it in focus. For instance, I was mentioning to you earlier uh, my second year at Camp Calumet in the summer of 1961. Uh, I met another group of people through Marvin Liner and Herberob. Uh, discussed with them what I wanted to do because I had to win that contest. I just had to. That's all there was to it. So we discussed the whole matter and somebody suggested, why don't you do a comparative analysis of African nationalism? Uh, comparing Kenya with Nigeria and arguing the point of uh, 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 congruence and confluence would be the Congo. I said, you know, that's a good idea. So this gentleman called his wife, and in those days you clipped the New York Times. You didn't get it on, of course there was no internet. She brought four or five humongous folders of clippings from the Manchester Guardian and the London Times and the New York Times and the this and that and whatever. And... um I made notes, left, right, and center, up and down. I was writing like a man possessed. Then I took it to the university. Massman again, and Shusky. <laughs> I said, this is what I want to do. I laid it out to them and made my presentation. I said, no, that's a good idea. Shusky suggested, Professor Shusky. I said to him, you know, Durkheim talk about religion, and he's talking about sacred things. But can... Uh, uh, secular things also have a sacred proportion. He said, yeah, sure. Yeah, nationalism is something like that. Of course it can. Oh, man, music to my ear. I went to work, oh, day and night, day and night, up and down, day and night, writing this paper. I wrote it. I won first prize. Told my mother, oh, my goodness, she was on cloud nine. So the, the consciousness, the identity, took the form of of political analysis and projections that I thought were pragmatic at the time turned out to be upside down. <laughs> but at least at that time I was successful at it. And finally, um, when I went to graduate school, I met an extraordinary man, Peter Berger. Uh, Professor Berger was, he was just one of a kind. That man was amazing. Uh, we became quite friendly. Because I just wanted to learn everything in six months. There is, I wanted to learn everything there was to learn in the world in six months. No eating, no sleeping, no nothing, just learning. I'm still learning. <laughs> now, the question of academic excellence is a critical one for me. Because I have seen the manifestations of academic excellence. I saw it very, very, very closely, upfront and personally. Uh, at the State University of New York at Stony Brook in 1970s, when Chinese students started flooding into that university. When you talk about study and the acquisition of academic excellence, the Chinese students at Stony Brook and elsewhere in the United States and the world for that matter, have written the book. In every single high status university in the world in which Chinese students are registered, they are at the top of their classes. And we see the results of it today. In other words, there is no African Renaissance without academic excellence. Excellent words from my guest in People of Note, Canute Paris. And we're coming up to his final choice of music now, which is a wonderful song called My Boy Lollipop.
Millie Small and My Boy Lollipop. The final choice of my guest, Canute Paris, who is visiting South Africa from Jamaica. He's just written a book on the African Renaissance. And if people want to hear more about you, have you got a website? Uh, no, but I can give you my email address, which is paris35 at hotmail.com. There we go. Paris35 at hotmail.com. And Paris is spelled P-A-R-R-I-S. P-A-R-R-I-S 75 at hotmail.com. No, 35. Oh, 35. 35. Paris35 at hotmail.com. There we are. People of note has come to an end for another week. Thanks for listening. And thank you to Canute for coming in. And until next time, from all of us here at Classic 1027, we wish you a very good night. And thank you very much.